You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. With that, we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 7. And I said earlier that the sort of theme for the day, if you wanted to create a heading for your notes as you're sort of taking note of of what we study here, the theme is freedom. And the idea that we in Christ are free. Now that's a loaded term. That means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in the world around us. And even as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that can mean a lot of different things. But hang with me. I'm going to read a long section of scripture that sort of sets us up to have an understanding of what that freedom means for us in Christ. So hang with me. Follow along. Beginning in verse 7, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7, all the way down through the end of the chapter. Paul says this to the church. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We just sang that in one of our praise songs. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Several weeks ago, as we entered into the new year, we talked about the old covenant versus the new covenant. How God has related to his people in the Old Testament sense through his chosen people, the nation of Israel, as a light and a witness to all the other nations around them. He dealt with them through the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant, the old agreement between God and mankind, it was represented through death by way of sacrifices to cover over sin. If you remember what I said there, the Old Covenant was a bloody, bloody business. 
Because as the people sinned, they had to bring offerings of bulls and rams and goats and sheep and doves. And, and the priests, while we have this image of priests in flowing garments with funny hats on and these kinds of things, no, the priests back then had to roll up their sleeves and go to town. They were butchers. They were constantly sacrificing animals so that the sins of the people could be covered over so that God would allow them to continue living in his blessing and grace. The old covenant was represented by death. Now, the new covenant, what's so exciting for us as followers of Jesus is that Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice of his own life, and then ultimately his resurrection, this new covenant that he said is represented by his broken body and his shed blood, the table of communion, the Eucharist that we participate in every week, Jesus says that the new covenant is the perfect sacrifice. It doesn't just cover over sin. When you believe upon Jesus, his sacrifice of blood actually washes away your sin. Your sin doesn't exist to God anymore. When you believe upon Jesus, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven, washed away, cleaned from your record for all eternity, and that you and I, when we believe upon Jesus, get to behold God in his glory. We get to see him as he is because we see Jesus. Now, Paul talks here about how that old covenant was fading away. And even as it was in practice in the Old Testament, that old covenant was something that couldn't last. It was never going to fulfill the desire of God's heart to reconcile his people to himself. It's just impossible. The the, the blood of bulls and goats and rams was never sufficient to be the perfect sacrifice. I want you to think back to the Old Testament with me, Exodus chapter 34. This is what Paul is commenting on, in fact, is the way in which um, Moses would represent the presence of God to his people. Back in Exodus, uh, so turn to Exodus 34, if you will, second book of the Bible right at the beginning. But remember, as you find your way to there, to Exodus 34, several chapters earlier in Exodus 20, when God is going to give his law to his people, the Ten Commandments, right? It begins with the children of Israel looking up at the mountain where God's presence had descended and seeing smoke and fire and lightning and rumblings and thunder. And the people go, uh-uh, Moses, you go up there and talk to God. We don't want to go up there. We don't have, the, we don't have the, the courage to go and be in God's presence. So Moses, you go up there, listen to what God has to say, and then come back and tell us, and we'll do it. Wink, wink. Right? Like that was the whole, that was the whole thing with the nation of Israel. They were like, nah, we don't want to be in God's presence. Can I just say before we look at this in Exodus 34, that's how a lot of people treat church even now, 2,000 years later or more, like this, this is still how people treat church, right? They think of church as, um, I'll show up and you pastor, preacher, worship leaders, whatever, you talk to God for us and you just tell us what you want us to do. Tell us what God says in his word so that he's not angry with me. A lot of Christians still process that way. Like, we may never say that out loud or, like, flesh it out verbally that way, but a lot of Christians still act that way. Rather than saying, no, God, 
I have been brought near by the blood of Jesus so that I can be in your presence without fear. See, the Old Testament was God's presence, whoo, uh-uh. And, and the reason, and it was right, and rightfully so, right? Because in the Old Testament, what had happened right before the law was being given? Like God, God is talking to Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. And what are the children of Israel doing down below? They rose up to play, quote, unquote, right? All of a sudden, a golden calf comes popping out of the furnace, and they're worshiping this gold. Like sin was just prevalent, right? So, of course, they would say, no, I don't want to go into your presence, God. You'll strike me dead. And I think a lot of people still feel that, right? Like, I don't want to go into God's presence. He knows what I've done. I know what I've done. Most everybody knows what I've done. And why would I want to be in his presence, right? But the point of what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that what we see here in Exodus 34 is going away, was going away. So look at Exodus 34 with me, verse 29. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses' face physically was like it was like a bright light. Okay? Remember those glowworm toys? Like those glowworms where, where it was a little toy, right? In the 80s, and they had a face that glowed, that kind of a thing. Think of that. Moses the glowworm, all right? Think about, think about that. Verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel that what, he, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This just came to mind as an illustration, but do you know the movie Tangled? Does everybody know the movie, movie Tangled, right? It's basically a modern telling of Rapunzel, right, with the long hair. And you know how her uh, wicked stepmother, Mother Gothel, or whatever her name is, up in the tower, she's actually this ancient lady, but there's this, like, magical spell that, that she has her daughter sing to her, and then all of a sudden she gets young again, right? That's, think about that in this context. Moses would go in remove the veil, meet with the presence of God face to face, he would come out shining, like shining like the presence of God, but then he would put a veil over his face. And every time he would go in, he would remove the veil, get regenerated, get glowed up again, and then he'd have to go out and put the veil back over his face. Why? Why would he have to put the veil over his face? Was it because the presence of God was so powerful and it was intimidating to the people and they were like, whoa, Moses, and wow, we can't behold the glory of God. It's too much for us. That's kind of what we might think because the power of God is so full and real. But think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what we just read. In verse 7, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, now if the ministry of death, meaning the old covenant, carved in letters of stone, meaning the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, right? 
which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face. Mark this. This is why he put the veil over his face. So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What does that mean? Every time Moses would go in and meet with God, he'd be illuminated, glowworm, tangled, right? And he's glowing as he came out. But here's the thing. As soon as he came out of God's presence, the glory would begin to fade. His face wouldn't glow as bright moment by moment by moment. And so it wasn't because of this all-surpassing power of God's presence before the people of Israel that they would be frightened by the glowing of Moses' face. No, it was actually this weird fear, arrogance thing of Moses's that he would go, I don't want them to see that God's glory is fading away from me, that I can only have God's glory shown when I'm in his presence. See, the reality is, is that in the old covenant, there was no way to remain in God's presence permanently. You had to bring a sacrifice for your sin. It had to get bloody. And, and if you did go and meet with God, as Moses was the represent, representative of the people to meet with God, God's glory was there. But as soon as you leave the tent, as soon as you leave the mountaintop, the glory begins to fade away because you're not in God's presence constantly. The beauty of the new covenant purchased for us by Jesus' blood is this, that we get to behold the glory of God constantly. We get to constantly, moment by moment, behold the glory of God. We are always, in a real and tangible way, able to step into God's presence. The Holy Spirit who resides with us, lives in us, leads us toward the truth of Jesus Christ in everything God's presence is there, and so we can, at a moment's notice, just bask in the glory of God's presence and be illuminated, be lightened, be brightened, however you want to think about that. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people don't like that idea. They don't like the idea that God is always with us. Why? Because we like the idea of being able to hide our sin we like the idea of people not knowing our deepest and darkest thoughts and secrets. We think there are places in our life, whether it be psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically, we think that there are places where we can hide from everybody else, and we like to maintain the illusion that we can hide from God. Again, a lot of these things we wouldn't verbalize this way. We wouldn't say it out loud, but we act that way. I don't want God to know everything about me. Because again, if he knew everything about me, wouldn't he be angry with me? Wouldn't he be disappointed with me? And again, the beauty of the new covenant, the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, is that if we've been saved, if our sins have been forgiven and wiped away off of our record, washed clean, if we have this new heart that the Bible talks about, that God takes out this heart of stone that wants to rebel and turn against God, and he puts into us this heart of flesh that can actually feel things and actually be sensitive to his Holy Spirit, what we begin to learn in God's presence is that we don't have to keep up appearances. We can actually be honest about who we are, 
what we're experiencing, what we're struggling with, and we can be honest about those things with the Lord. Because even if the things that we're struggling with are sort of dirty, ugly, sinful, in the new covenant, they've already been washed clean. They're already done away with. We're, we're living life. We're fighting this spiritual battle that we've studied recently. We're fighting from the winning side. We've already won because Jesus overcame sin and death in his crucifixion and resurrection. So what that means is that we get to avoid one of the worst sins present in the church today. One of the worst sins, I believe, in the church today is this lack of authenticity. This idea of when I come to church, it's for the purpose of showing everybody that I'm okay and that I'm good. And I, and I say this with true sincerity, and I'll give you an example of, of how this works out. But if we simply show up every week and are acting like everything's okay and that our life the other six days of the week isn't a hot mess, which it is, right? Like if we show up on Sunday and just want everybody to think, look, my family's got it together and we're good and we're at church and we're all happy and shut up, kids. You know, like, like and that's how we want to present ourselves. We're missing out on one of the great joys of this new covenant freedom that we have in the Lord, which is the fact that we could show up and go, I am a mess today. And, and no one, no one has the right to judge that person and go, well, get your act together. Don't you love Jesus? Aren't you really a Christian? You shouldn't say those words. You shouldn't do that activity. You shouldn't be looking at those things. Listen, some of that stuff might be true in the pursuit of holiness. Absolutely, there are things we shouldn't be saying or thinking or doing. But the reality is, is that that's that spiritual battle that we're going through every single day to become more and more like Jesus, which Paul talks about in just a second moving from one glory to greater glory. But I think one of the biggest things that we can fail in as the church is to act like somehow we've got it all together and we want to show everybody that we don't need prayer. We don't need help. We don't need correction. And I'll, show, I'll just give this example to you this week. And I think this is one of the biggest things I've learned in ministry in the last several years is this. This week, we got together on Thursday night to play music, and we're, everybody had their instruments out, and we were playing and we're working through some songs, and I was just a little off. I was annoyed by something, and I said something to one of the people there on Thursday night, and I was, I was just kind of flat-out rude, and I just went, boom, and I, and I shot off with a comment that I wasn't meaning to be mean or rude, but it was just in my annoyance. I said something that was sort of dismissive and, and not very kind or gracious, and I went on with the rest of the night. And then one of the brothers who was there that night texted me later on, and he went, whoa, hey, man, that kind of was kind of a brutal comment. That wasn't very, very cool. And it was like, I'm so thankful for that guy that he didn't have this sense of like, well, that's Lucian. He's the pastor or he's the worship leader or whatever, and I can't approach that. No. In love, he just came and said, man, that was a pretty, that was a pretty harsh comment you made to that guy. I said, hey, thank you. Thank you for, for sort of calling me out on that. Next day, went back, addressed the guy, apologized, asked for his forgiveness. And here's the thing. Once you do that and once you accept that that's the way that we're supposed to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, owning our stuff, like saying, yeah, I screwed up, and then asking forgiveness, and then someone forgiving you and being able to be right back in relationship, once you experience that, you start to understand that's how stuff's supposed to look in the church. Not just, hey, that wasn't my fault, it was his fault, and, and creating excuses for our behavior when it's sinful, but owning it and just going, yeah, I screwed up. The pastor screwed up. Heck yeah. 
follow me around all week. You may not come back. I mean, let's be honest. Let's just be really honest. Like, I'm surprised my family's here, okay? The truth is, is that that's the kind of transparency that we're supposed to have, that we have the freedom to have, is to go, I'm a mess, and I need your help. I need your help. I need you to pray for me. I need you to call me out of my sin. I need to repent and be forgiven constantly. I need to confess. Like, and, and that's not to say that we appoint one another as watchdogs where we follow each other around and go, oh, that was a sin, and oh, that was a sin, right? Like, and some people in the church like to create a full-time job out of that. They just want to nitpick everybody else's life, right? That's not the point. The point is, is that we're willing to experience freedom in the grace and forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. Now, let's get back to the text here, verse 16, and we'll finish our time looking at these last couple of verses and what Paul is describing to the church at Corinth. Now, remember the big picture and concept behind Paul's letter to the Corinthian church here in 2 Corinthians. It's that in our weakness, God is strong. And God, in his strength and power, comforts us so that we comfort one another in the body of Christ. That's the big theme. That's what Paul's talking about and teaching throughout this letter. Here's what it says in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the truth is this. Paul is speaking specifically about the Old Testament, the Jews, who now, when the the law is read, they still have a veil over their eyes spiritually, over their hearts. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. This is one of those things that you experience when you go to Israel. A lot of times Christians, when they go to Israel, they're going to the Holy Land, and they're like, I'm going to go talk to a Jew, and I'm going to convert them. I'm going to tell them about Jesus, and there's going to be a revival, right? Like, great heart, awesome. We were told very specifically, do not talk to the Jews about Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that kind of like, uh, uh, that's, isn't that an opposition to the purpose of the gospel? Listen, God describes in his word the plan that he has for his people. That when Jesus returns, all the world is going to see even the one whom they pierced, the Jews, and how they missed it the first time. That, that, that he is the Messiah. He's the reigning king of all of the world. And they will cry out and repent at that time. Right now, there's still this veil that that covers their heart and their eyes to where they can't see that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, that's true of Jews, but it's true of all non-believers. You have to understand that. This isn't just specifically to Jews. It's to all those who have not believed upon Jesus and the gospel of his death and resurrection. There's a veil, and there's something we have to remember about this. There's a subtext to this. Follow me on this. Because there's this spiritual veil over people's hearts and eyes, remember what the scripture says, when they t- but because only through Christ is it taken away, right? It says that, that um, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to me and my sermon, then the veil's taken away? No. When one is turned to the Lord by my tract and my little knocking on their door and sharing, no, listen, those are all things that we do because God has told us to do those things in ministering the gospel, but it's the Lord who changes someone's heart. He pulls the veil away, right? It, 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 when Jesus Christ died on the cross and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, Nobody went in and tore that veil in the temple saying, now the presence of God is available to all. No, God tore the veil. He ripped it from top to bottom. 
Nobody changes anybody's heart. We testify. We give witness to the power of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. God changes people's hearts. He lifts the veil over their eyes spiritually. We, we don't do that ourselves. And so what that tells us in, in terms of our mission evangelistically is that, my goodness, we want to be faithful in our walk with the Lord, but we want to entrust those that we're praying for, those that we're sharing the gospel with, we want to entrust them to the Lord. It's been rightly said in the past that it's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. We get that backwards. I just want to tell everybody about what they're doing wrong. And maybe if I tell them enough times that they're doing things wrong, that they're sinful and they're going to go to hell, maybe that'll scare them enough to turn to Jesus. Again, we don't verbalize our ministries like this, but it often takes that form when the truth is this. Our responsibility more than anything is to bring people in prayer and lay them before the Lord and say, Jesus, save these people. They're your people. You created them. You're the one who made them. Owen's teaching the kids right now in the, in the, in the, in the other room over there. He's teaching them about Genesis chapter 1, how the difference between humans and animals is this, that God created humans in his image as a reflection of him so that they might be in relationship with him. And so my responsibility in sharing the gospel with people is to live out the life of Christ. It's to grow in faithfulness and holiness and obedience to Jesus. It's to share the gospel verbally, to preach, and and, and to share and talk and invite people to church. But my bigger responsibility is to pray for those people and go, Lord, you do the work of saving them. I can't do that. I can't save anybody. Jesus saves people. Now, Christians often talk about this sense of freedom that they receive, this feeling of like being released from bondage, from chains, like weights being lifted off their back when they come to Christ and are forgiven of their sins. What is this freedom that's talked about? In verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, meaning the presence of the Holy Spirit, there is freedom. Does Paul mean in this sense of freedom, like we would think about freedom of like, you can't tell me what to do. Is that the freedom that Paul's talking about? This sort of thing like, well, my sins are now forgiven, um, so I can pretty much do whatever I want. We would interpret that as moral freedom, right? Don't tell me what to do with my life. I can do whatever I want. I've been forgiven of my sins. I've talked to Christians like that, where they say, no, I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm just a saved sinner. And so God knows that I'm going to fail and make mistakes, and so I'm forgiven. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's what the Bible would call treading upon the grace of God. That would be walking over the dead body of Jesus Christ. No, it's not moral freedom. Well, maybe it's intellectual freedom. You can't tell me what to think, Lucian. You're not the expert. Just because you're holding the Bible and talking to me doesn't mean that you can tell me what to do. It's not that kind of freedom either. It's not intellectual. It's not moral freedom. It's not ethical freedom. In fact, the scripture talks about this very specifically. Mark down these scriptures. You don't have to turn there. I'll read them to you. But mark down Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. These scriptures sort of back up the idea that the freedom that we have in Christ is not this sort of don't tell me what to do freedom where I can choose to do whatever I want because I'm forgiven now. That's not what it is. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, I'd encourage you to read the whole thing this week devotionally. But here's what... Paul says to the Galatian church 
in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The, the, the warning that Paul gives to the Galatian church is this. Yeah, you were set free from sin, but don't use that freedom to then go and justify more sinful behavior. Don't think, oh, i got to get out of jail ticket free card. I know Jesus. I know the guy at the door. And so even though I have spent the rest of my life after I knew Jesus completely following after the flesh and sinning and just choosing to deny the truth of what God has told me in his scriptures and the example of Jesus' life, because I know Jesus, that means I get to slide in the door of heaven at the end of everything. Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Mark also 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 communicates something very similar, but in a different context. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is very apropos for our day and age. A lot of debate can be had over this verse in particular. We're not going to have that now. But he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. A lot of people like to stop there and go, Yeah, we're free. We don't have to do what anybody tells us. Jesus is our king. And it sounds good on paper. It sounds good when you have a bunch of people who all look alike and sound alike and act alike in the room together. But finish the scripture. Live as people who are free, verse 16. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Mark this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. If that doesn't convict your heart in some personal way right now, I would ask you to meditate on that this week. Far too often, whether it be in our conversation or simply in our own thoughts, we are absolutely derogatory, negative, critical of other people, and we don't honor everyone. Peter says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. If that doesn't cause you to stop as well, and consider, how have I not loved others who are Christians? I'd ask you to consider that this week. I know I've spent a lot of time analyzing, critiquing, criticizing other people who are calling out to Jesus, the same Jesus that I call out to. And I spend a lot of time critiquing them, going, nope, they got it wrong. They're not doing it right. The way that they're talking, acting, the way that they do service, what they're teaching, nope. Peter would say, Love the brotherhood. Just love them. Are they about Jesus? Good, love them. Are they all the way right? Probably not. Am I all the way right? Heck no. There's all kinds of things I've grown in and learned in over my walk with the Lord. I'm still learning and growing. I hope I never stop until I get to see Jesus. But love the brotherhood, he says. Fear God. And lastly, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. 
Who was the emperor at this time? Does anybody know who the emperor was at the time that Peter was writing this? Just Bible trivia. Nero. If you don't know who Emperor Nero was, I'd suggest you go Google him and find out the atrocities that he perpetuated against Christians. Persecution that you and I have never experienced. Dipping Christians in candle wax, setting them up in his courtyards, and lighting them on fire. Riding his chariot through his courtyards, saying, you're the light of the world. You're th it's kind of funny. It's tragic funny, but it's like gross, grotesque funny. You're the light of the world. Burning Christians as candles. Unless you think that that's just a legend, you can go back and study those things in antiquity. Um, it's mentioned, I, I, I believe, in Josephus. Honor the emperor. We live. I didn't mean to talk about this, so forgive me, but, but the political climate that we live in is one where we just go, nope. I'm not honoring Kate Brown. I'm not honoring Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. They're heretics. They're against what I stand for. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Welcome to the world. Welcome to the world where we as Christians are the minority. We are the ones who are going to be singled out and told you're bigots and you're hate-filled and this gospel that's so exclusive to you, we don't want to have anything to do with it to the point where we may try and introduce legislation to silence you and not allow you to gather together and meet together. We may take away your tax-exempt status so that you have to pay the government so that when you want to give to the Lord, the government's going to try and take some of that money back. Like, all of those things might be true. Why are we shocked by this? Look at what God has reported to us about the history of the church. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 24 and Luke 14. These are the things to expect when we don't have an eschatology, an understanding of the end times that includes some type of suffering, some type of tribulation for us as believers in our life, it can build in us this arrogance that somehow we're not supposed to be present and engaged in this current world that we live in, politically and spiritually, morally, physically. And yet this is what Peter would say. He would say, honor the emperor. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Love the fellowship. But honor everybody. And that's what Paul said to the Galatians. Man, the law, everything that God taught his people to, about being holy is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not just the people who look like you, act like you, sing like you, talk like you, worship like you. But love your neighbor as yourself. Because when we do that, when we actually take on the behavior of Jesus... We're opening up the door to this freedom for us to go, it's not me. It's not about me saving anybody. The Lord saves people. He's the one that changes people's heart. Now, let's finish out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what Paul is telling the church here. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From glory to greater glory is what the King James says. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we talk about freedom as a Christian, 
when we discuss this idea that we're free from our sins, we have this freedom in life now, I don't think it means moral freedom, ethic freedom, intellectual freedom, right, where we get to choose what we believe and, and, and say, no, you can't tell me what to think or to do. I don't think that's the type of freedom that Paul's talking about. I think what P- Paul's talking about in terms of freedom in, in relationship to the parallel of Moses in the Old Testament having to veil his face because God's glory is fading away from him every time he leaves the tent of meeting, to the glory that we now have by beholding Jesus with an unveiled face, we get to be in the presence of God continually. I think the freedom that Paul's talking about is the freedom of access. You and I have access to God and the presence of his glory in a way that the old covenant never allowed for. Mark down Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Pardon me, I'll begin in verse 14 because the whole passage is awesome. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I believe this is the freedom of the Christian life. That when we're forgiven of our sins, we now have access to the presence of God wherever we are, whenever we are, with whomever we might be with, this is what we have the freedom to in life, to leave the old behind, the sin and the turmoil and the conflict and the fear and the regret and the guilt. We get to leave all of that behind. We get to boldly, confidently, the author of Hebrews says, come before the presence of God most high. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, he prays to the Father and says, Father, I've glorified you, and now I pray that you would glorify me. My time on earth has come here. It's come to an end. And I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be obedient to be the sacrifice for all sin. And he says, glorify me. And then he prays to the Father. And what he prays is that the Father would not take his followers, Jesus' disciples, out of the world, but he just prays that he would keep them in his will, that he would protect Jesus' followers, the one whom the Father had given to Jesus. What Jesus was asking is that he would keep his followers safe so that they could experience the same kind of fellowship that Jesus and God the Father had. Even in the absence of Jesus physically, you and I can come into God's presence, even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of persecution, sadness, grief, regret, all of those things. We can come into the presence of God with boldness and experience that freedom that we can't experience anywhere else, being in the presence of God.